doing? How was that? That was good, wasn't it? Can we give our team a hand for leading us one more time? That was fun. We had a little church up in here, as we say in the hood. Uh, that was good. That was a good time. Great time. Hey, what a celebration. Those who have taken the step of obedience to publicly declare their faith in Jesus Christ by being baptized. Can we give them a hand one more time? I, I love the fact that we're a part of a church where people are coming to Christ and being baptized and following the Lord and saying, you know what, I declare that I want to follow Christ in obedience. We praise God for that. And part of baptism is not only a public declaration of the inward change, it is a call for us as a church to remind them and pray for them and keep them accountable on the journey. And so that's why we do this. It, it, it's, it was instituted by Christ really as a reminder to the people that watch to remind them of their faith, to say, we're here with you, that we walk in this journey together. And so we praise God for them, be in prayer for them. If you want to take your Bibles out with me this morning, turn to, to Matthew chapter 5. We're in a series through the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat back in front of you. If you turn with us to page 810, Matthew chapter 5, page 810. As you turn there, uh, a couple things I just want to go over with you. We're going to take a little bit of time here. Um, First of all, I wanted to share with you, I have a, a that is out now on Amazon, uh, a new book from a series I did two years ago. This is my first book that I've written, and uh, it is, yeah, you can, thank you. And I wanted to let you know, we're, we're going to get these this week in hand. Um, some have ordered them on Amazon. We're going to have a great, uh, a better deal. Now, uh, this book is about grace. I did a series two years ago called The Idol Called Grace, and it was all about how we manipulate grace for our own good. How we take the grace of God and make the grace of God more important than God himself. That we worship the gift more than the gift giver. And that's what this book is about. It's, it's kind of a warning call to say, how are we really treating the grace of God? That the grace of God should only cause us to worship the God who gave it all the more. And so that's what this book is about. Um, it will be a great uh, coffee coaster for you. We'll have these available in the next coming weeks. I'm just kidding. Uh, but worked really hard. God did some amazing things in this journey through this book. So I hope it will be a blessing to you. By the way, some of you will say, well, David, is your, is your point only just to make money on a book? First of all, I've learned you don't make a lot anyway. But second of all, uh, the, the point of this really is to encourage people. So all of the money that we get from this is going to go right to the church. I, I'm a pastor. This is what I do. I love what I get to do. The church pays me. I'm, I'm taken care of uh, as a staff member here. And so the point of this book is really to encourage people in their faith. And so uh, we hope that you'll be blessed by that. That'll be available next week. If you haven't ordered it already, we'll have those available at a discount price here. Only here can you get it there at a discount price. So we hope you'll, you'll grab that. I hope it'll be encouragement to you. And if anything, you can put it on a bookshelf and it'll collect dust. And that's fine as well. I also want to mention a, a big thank you. I know uh, many of you have been praying for me in the journey that I've been in health-wise. Back in January, I found out that I had a, uh, a blood clot in my intestine. Uh, what's called a mesenteric blood clot, a very rare, uh, very dangerous blood clot. It is rare for 80-year-olds. It's significantly rare for a 41-year-old to have it. And so I've been journeying through a lot of health issues, a lot of tests, um, and, and it's been up and down. Some days I feel great. Some days I run a fever. Some days I feel miserable. Some days I, I can't even move. Some days I, I feel normal. And so it's been this up and down roller coaster ride. I've had like tests every week, blood tests, CT scans, MRIs, all types of things every single week. Uh, thankfully, and I want to give you this update, thankfully uh, I've been able to, to, to do well enough over the last couple of weeks where things that have been swollen have begun to calm down and so I'm able to have these scans and scopes that they really want to do, these surgical scopes where they can go in and really see why this happened. And that's a big thing they're trying to find out. Uh, this type of blood clot always has a cause and they're wondering what did cause it. And, uh, and so they're journeying through that. So praise the Lord. I just want to thank God for your prayers and praise the Lord that I'm able to get these scopes and scans that they really wanted to get done but ha can't because my pancreas was swollen, my liver was swollen, all these different things. So I've increased enough to be able to get those scans. So hopefully we get answers very soon. Um, but over the last two weeks, I've had some of the better days I've had in months. And so I just want to say thank you for your prayers. Uh, there have been, it, it goes like this every day. It's different. I praise God that I can be up here and continue to preach and, and continue to do what I love to do. So thank you. Thank you. I wanted to give you an update. Thank you for your prayers. Seriously, it, it has meant so much to me, the cars I've received. And, and you know, one of the things that I mourn greatly over these past two months, and I've been journeying through this uh, really almost three months now, uh, one of the things I mourn greatly is 
that I don't get to come out after the service and shake hands and hug people and pray with people. One of the things they told me is to limit my people intake because of infection and different things and just not knowing what it is. And so uh, I'm a people person. And so when you ask a people person not to go out and meet people, it's like death. And so every Sunday, I kind of feel this weight of just, oh, I want to go out there so bad, and and I want to obey the doctors, and I want to listen, and I want to make sure I'm taking care of myself. So hopefully, pray with me, then the next few weeks, I can be out there and rejoice with you and pray with you. Uh, I miss that greatly, and I just know that I love you. I I love being able to meet people and and hugging people and praying with people and say, hey, we're here for you. So uh, pray for that. Also, I want to do one more thing here before we dive in. Inside your program, if you would just pull out this little pamphlet that says more on it. I want to talk about this for a moment, uh, a little, little update about what's happening. If you remember two years ago, in fact, two years ago, this past February, just a month ago, uh, we launched our Vision 2020 campaign. It was a three-year campaign, but it was more than a giving campaign. It was a recommitment of our church to be about our community, to say, we want to be a church making a difference throughout the region. And so we launched that, uh, that 2020 Vision campaign, and we really had three key initiatives in that campaign. First of all, we believe God was calling us to put a city center in downtown Mansfield, a serving center to serve the underprivileged and underserved. Secondly, that we believe God was calling us to pay off the mortgage of this property to free us greatly of the finance that this building causes, the burden it is. And then thirdly, uh, to launch a multi-venue campus, to grow larger by getting smaller. You know, many people walk into this building and they're like, oh, just so big, there's so many people. I mean, we have over 3,000 people now that attend Crossroads. Uh, our numbers are, are, have been phenomenal of recent. We get people that continue to be baptized and these type of things, exciting things. And one of the things that we, we as we realize the culture we're in, one of the things that we notice is that people are like, you know, I, I don't know if I like the big anymore. And so our goal is to help neighbors reach their neighborhoods. And so that's the reason we did this multi-venue campus, is to help us reach into neighborhoods that maybe they won't come this far. And so we asked you uh, for $1 million. We said, would you commit to $1 million? And that was how much we asked for. And you committed, and if you remember two years ago, we committed $1.138 million. As always, Crossroads goes above and beyond the call of duty. It blows my mind. By the way, I get to talk to a lot of pastors across the country, and I'm always talking about just how great and generous Crossroads is when they see the vision, when they understand, when you as a church understand what God is doing, to say, we're in. We want to be a part of it. And so we committed at $1.138 million. We have received up to date $787,000 of that. We are right on track in the campaign. So those of you that committed, you're actually giving, and we're right on track to complete that campaign. Not only are we on track to complete that campaign, we are doing the initiatives that we said we would do in that campaign. So we have a city center. That has been completed in 2017. By the way, there are stories being written even now of the great work that is happening in that city center. Uh, uh, the gospel going forth, being able to meet the needs in our community. Uh, we have started now to, to walk. We began by crawling. Now we're walking and we're looking to run in the future at the city center. Uh, we also have our Shelby campus, our multi-venue campus, which was completed in 2018. Uh, By the way, in Shelby, today there are uh, a few people being baptized there at our campus. Uh, We have we average a little over 200, 250, 220 people, uh, uh, around 200 people that go there. Uh, we average anywhere from, from 150 to 190 in attendance, but we have over 200 people that go there. And, and what's interesting, 110 of those people that attend our Shelby campus never attend at Crossroads. So I just want to paint the picture that this idea of helping neighbors reach their neighborhoods is actually working. And so there are 110 people that never attended Crossroads <laughs> that go to our Shelby campus. Now, so we're on track. By the way, uh, our mortgage elimination, we are on track. We are making extra payments these next few months. Our goal is by the end of this year to have a big party, pay off. We're going to burn the note, not burn the building. Uh, we're going to burn the note and celebrate paying off this building, which is a, a, a big amount of debt that we owe that will free us greatly of capital. You know, as we journey through this, it's amazing at times, and this is true in ministry, it's amazing at times that when you give more to God, God sometimes comes back and says, I want more for you. I want to do more with you. Now, this is not always true. This is not a prosperity idea that if I just give more, I get more. Or if I do more, God, no, 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 you may lose it all, and yet God is faithful, right? That's the gospel. But there are times and seasons where God says, I got more for you. 
And it, it, it seems as if we're in one of those seasons. I, I love Ephesians chapter 3. Paul writes in verse 20, one of my favorite verses is, Now to him, talking about Jesus, who is able to do far more abundantly. Ephesians 3.20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think according to the power at work where? Within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. God wants to do more. In fact, more is in the vocabulary of God. When it comes to his glory, when it comes to the gospel, God wants to do more. And then I think of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul writes, the church of Thessalonica. And he says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. There's this image that God says, I got more for you. I got more for you to do. And I, we believe that in the season we're in, God is saying, okay, I've got an, uh, another thing for you. I got more. If you remember back at our year in review in January, we talked about how we began a conversation actually a year ago this April. We began a conversation with a church in Lexington. We had had these conversations with the multiple churches in our area about, about kind of coming in and doing a campus there. And none of them have panned out. And we just humbly walk, go in and share our plan and say, here's what it is. And, and trust God to direct that. We had a church uh, through connections that we had a conversation with. And we began to meet with them, Christ Lutheran Church in Lexington, about what would it look like to have a campus there. We came to November, and we thought it was a done deal, it wasn't going to happen, it just, uh, it was a great conversation, to God be the glory, um, this wasn't the timing of that, and so we looked forward. We came back in December, and the church said, hey, we would like, we would like you to have our building. Now, we told them we weren't looking to buy property, we, weren't looking, we were looking for specific acquisitions that God would have to bring to us, and this was one of them. And so, uh, we began to walk through the process and what they were looking for, and, and uh, kind of a grant for education they were looking for, a small fee compared to buying the property, we're not, we weren't buying the property, and God laid on our lap this Lexington campus. We weren't looking for it. We weren't going out seeking it, but God laid this church in Lexington, and, and so we announced the Lexington campus. We mentioned uh, there on 159 Frederick Street in Lexington, Ohio, that God laid that in our lap, and, uh, and that now we need to be a steward of that. And so uh, we said, okay, God, how do we do this? Our campaign is wrapped up. Like all the money, the $1.138 million is wrapped in the three initiatives. Uh, our multi-venue campus in Shelby, our city center, and our mortgage reduction. We want to make sure we're going to eliminate this mortgage. We're going to do that. That's all wrapped up. So how do we do this? And so uh, we came back and said, maybe God in this season is saying, will you give more? Will you do more? I'm giving you more. Now we as leaders have to take a step of faith to do more. So our need for Lexington in order to have a campus there is $150,000. Now that sounds like a lot, and it is. But here's what's amazing. So a couple weeks ago, we had a dinner with some key leaders of our church. These are key influencers. And so we had a dinner and invited them and said, hey, what can we just start out doing? Can we put some seed in the ground and say, God, would you multiply it for your gospel's sake? You've given us this property. We don't understand fully why at this timing, but we want to be obedient. So we gathered some people together and had a dinner. And in that dinner, we, we asked 60 people to come, 30 couples. Those 30 couples have committed $50,000 then one family committed $50,000 alone in a matching gift. So of the $150,000 we need, we have 100,000 that has been committed by 30 couples, 30 families. One family saying we would like to match up to $50,000. If the other rest of the church would match that, we will give up to $50,000 to meet the need to have Lexington launch. Now let me give you some time frame. What is Lexington? When do we want to launch this? The ideal time to launch is in the fall. And so we have refabrication happening right now. Demo is free, right? You can demo anything for free. And so we've been demoing. We've been preparing the way, saying, okay, let's make this light crossroads in a, in a smaller scale. So that's been happening. Uh, our goal would be to have a preview service for those interested in our Lexington campus, August 11th. By the way, that campus will be focused on video mainly. I'll show up there at times. We'll have a teaching team at time come through there, but mainly it's going to be video. Now you might say, well, Dave, I don't know if video is going to work. Let me beg to differ. I look out here every week and 80% of you are looking to those screens, not at me. And I'm convinced it's because I look better on the screen than I do in live, and that's fair. Um, and we do that. We have a creative team that knows how to make the camera look better. We still love you, though. Thank you, thank you. Um, so many of you look at the screen, so it would be no different than that. Live worship, campus pastor, Pastor Ron Biddle, is going to be our campus pastor uh, in the time being. Yeah, we're excited about that. 
And then our hope is to launch September 8th. So what are we asking you? So we have 50,000 already committed, much of that in hand. Uh, we have 50,000 now waiting to be given based upon the challenge of our church. So I'm asking you, would you be willing to give together as a church, this is all of us, I'm, I'm in on this as well, I've been on, on this campaign personally as a family, and would you be willing to say I'm committed to giving the rest of that 50,000? So what does it mean? What does it look like, the need? Here's what it is. We need 50K, that, that's 200 families to say I'll give 250 bucks. By the way, that's $25 a month for the 10 months remaining of this year. If you would commit that, just to put that in perspective, that's less than a, a cup of coffee from Starbucks once a week. And so would, would 200 families say, I'll give, I'll give $250. If we do that, we meet, meet this need. There are some of you that might say, you know what, I can give a little more. There are 100 families, maybe that would say, I give, I'll give 500 bucks for this year. Just to give a little bit more, again, not taking away from the campaign, not taking away from our regular tithes and offerings, but just to say, I'll give to make this a reality. And so we need $50,000. It's bite size. It's, 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 we're able to do that. And we have this family saying, I'll match every dollar up to $50,000 so that we can get that $150,000. What a blessing that is. And So let me just say, thank you for your generosity. Thank you for your heart to reach in this community. Thank you for your heart to, to step out in faith. And so what I'm going to ask you, if you would just take out that card, and, and, and here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Would you pray about what God would have you give toward the Lexington campus, how you can help meet that need? On the back, you can write on there what you pledge. Uh, you can set this up online through the Vision 2020 campaign. You can go on there. Any new money that comes in will go to the more, kind of the more sub-campaign. It's within the Vision 2020 campaign. And so you can give. And notice on the back, we even listed out some things that you can give toward. There are things that we... we and detail needs. So we wanted to show you some of those costs, and you can fill that out. So would you pray about that? And remember, we have $50,000 waiting in the wings to be given if we meet that need and say we'll give up to $50,000. They will meet that need. So what an amazing thing. The cards are due on March 31st. The reason for that is we, we don't know whether we can go forward if we don't have the money to do that. And so we're willing to wait as long as God can provide. If God provides, we're going to jump in and follow the plan. If not, we'll, we'll go to plan B. And so God gave us more. And now he's asking more of us. And so we believe we're in a season that God is saying, you can do this. And uh, those people that we met with have proven we're ready to do that. So we hope you'll be a part of that. Well, let's dive into the word together. Matthew chapter 5. We're in this series through the Sermon on the Mount. And, and what we're really looking at is Jesus' first sermon. This is his inaugural address. And he's challenging us, and, and there's kind of a dual picture of this Sermon on the Mount. There's a part of us that will feel overwhelmed when we read it, and there's another part of us that feels called to a deeper kingdom. And that's the point of Jesus. He is, he's intentionally trying to draw the line in the sand and say, this is what it looks like to follow me. This is what it looks like to follow me. That is opposite of the way the world thinks. The world gets angry. The world is overwhelmed with lust. In the world, marriages fall apart. But, but he says, in the kingdom, we think differently. And that's his point. As we journey through this, he's saying, this is what it looks like to be salt and light. This is what it looks like to live my way. Now, before we dive in, I want to make a point, because I think this is very important when we consider what Jesus gets out in his ministry. In the church world, we live, we live in a time and a culture where many Christians and many churches try to understand what does it look like to be culturally relevant. You ever heard that phrase? How do I be culturally relevant? Meaning, how do I be relevant to the culture around me? How do I make this, this, this kind of look better and, and intrigue the culture around me? Can I tell you, I believe Jesus is actually throwing a wrench in that idea. I don't think the job of the church or the job of Christians are merely to be culturally relevant. What I believe Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is actually calling us to be cultural, culturally real. Not culturally relevant, but culturally real. What do I mean? So cultural reality. See, we live in a world that is fake, don't we? We started this series. Remember, I had a mask on and talked about how religiosity can be masked and we can fake it. We live in a world where there's a lot of fake religion, and we live in a world where even those who don't follow any religion are still living out their own presuppositions in a very fake way. It's all about us, right? And so in a world, of, in a world where there's fake people, in a world where there's fake news, in a world where you don't know who to trust, what Jesus is doing is putting a lie in the sand and saying Christians actually need to live in the culture in a very real way, and this is what it looks like to, real, to live 
in reality. This is what it looks like to live for the kingdom. This is what it looks like to live with cultural reality, not merely cultural relevance. Because if we live real, if we live truly based upon the word of God, you know what happens? I believe the world is yearning and starving for somebody to be real. They don't need more relevance. They need more reality. And that's the picture. See, relevance can become popularity. What we need to become is more real in what God is calling us to do. I don't think there's any greater place to find this than in our reactions. And that's where Jesus goes next as he begins to talk about our reactions. I remember back a few years ago, when we lived in Maryland, my, my sister worked for a company that had box seat tickets to the Washington Wizards and Washington Capitals game. So being a sports family, having all boys, we would love to go to the game. So my sister would give us four tickets, and they were like VIP tickets. We got to go back behind the arena and eat before the game, and then we would go out and sit courtside or sit right along the glass at the, at the Capitals game. And so we would take two boys to one and two boys to the other. Uh, well, one, one day we went to a Capitals game. We got tickets to a Washington Capitals game, and they were playing one of their rivals, the New York Rangers. Now, if you're, you're a hockey fan, you know this to be true. Uh, the Rangers and the Capitals have had a long history of rivalry. Not quite as much as the Capitals and the Penguins, but, but up there pretty close. And so we went to this game, and our seats were, were literally just a few rows off the glass. And so we were right in the action. I had my oldest son, David, with us. He was a teen at the time. And our youngest son, Isaac, was about five or six years old. And here we are, you know, sitting in great seats, having a great time, got to eat a meal beforehand, and, and we're watching the game. So the game is, gets to the third period. It's like a tie game. It's tense. And right in front of us, one of the Rangers players, in, in the middle of kind of a stoppage of play, takes his stick, and he nails with the butt of the stick a, a Capitals player right in front of us. So we're watching this, and immediately our section begins to boo and yell. I mean, they start shaking the glass, right? This is hockey. This is the way it's supposed to be. So the Capitals player responds. He reacts, right? Naturally, he reacts. He takes his hockey stick and nails the guy in the leg. I think it's crazy anyway because they have pads everywhere, but nonetheless, they nails him in the leg. So all of a sudden, their gloves come off, and we got fisticuffs happening right in front of us. So now you got people screaming, yelling, and at the third, by the time of the third period, people have began to drink a little too much, and so it started to get crazy. And I'm sitting here thinking, this is awesome. Like, if I was by myself, I would be loving this. I've got my young boy here. I mean, what are we teaching him? And so now there's, there's people coming off the bench, and they're starting to fight. Slowly, the referees get control, and they send one player to the penalty box. And it happens to be a Washington Capitals player. Now, how unfair is that? He didn't start the fight. And so the entire arena begins to boo the referees. Not only do they boo the referees, but there's a guy in our section that begins a chant. And the chant went like this, refs, you stink. Refs, you stink. Except they didn't say stink. <laughs> so here's my, my, my five to six-year-old. The crowd now across the entire arena is yelling, refs, you stink. Refs, you stink. Except the other word, which we didn't use in our house. And now I'm like, oh, all right, what do we do? Allison's looking at me and saying, do we need to go have another meal? <laughs> Where and so all of a sudden, we're trying to figure out what to do because here's our young son, and then I see his hand go like this, and his mouth move, and so I'm like, oh, no, we've got a problem here. We've got a problem. If he wasn't here, this would be fantastic, but he's here. So, so I leaned down. I'm like, hey, buddy, what, what are you yelling? He's like, oh, I'm yelling what everybody else is yelling. Refs, you, you know, and he didn't tell us what he was yelling, but I said, so what are you saying? What are you actually saying? I want to make sure, because he didn't even know what that word means, right? Refs, you see. And so with the, the most tender voice, in the most honest way, he looks at me and goes, Dad, I'm yelling, pull off their socks, pull off their socks. He thought the entire arena was yelling, pull off their socks. So now he's 14, and wherever we get into one of those heated moments in a game, pull off your socks, pull off their socks. That's our chant now. True story, true story. Here's the point. Throughout our lives... There will be moments where you're going to be wrongly hurt by someone. When you become a victim of someone else's decisions, right? Someone's going to say they hate you. A parent who maybe walked out on you. A friend who speaks badly about you behind your back. A boss that continues to run over you with his or her words. A neighbor that seems to ignore you. A spouse that shreds you with the words they speak. And in our culture, in our society, we live with a mantra that says, when that happens, you better react. 
When that happens, you better respond. When that happens, you better retaliate. You better not resist. You go after it. When you're hurt, you bring hurt back. You ever heard the phrase, hurting people hurt people? How it happens, right? I feel hurt, and so I'm going to bring pain to somebody else. Jesus here is going to throw a wrench into this thinking. Take a look with me, Matthew chapter eight, uh, chapter five, and we're going to begin in verse 38. It says, "You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles." Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, and Gentiles were a phrase for the entire rest of the world, not the Jews. Don't they do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I want to look at five different things in this text that we get right really from the text as we we look at this together. Number one, we are called to reject what is expected. Right, in the world there's an expectation that when something comes against us, we fight back. By the way, you, have to turn on, you don't have to turn on uh, a TV very, very quickly to find, right? If you turn on the TV, you're going to find very quickly a television show or a movie that gives us this picture, right? There's something that takes place, and then a reaction comes, right? There's Liam Neil- Nielsen when his daughter's taken. There's an Avenger that responds, right? There's a picture every time of something taking place that's unjust, and a reaction is, I'm going to go after the person. I'm going to fight back. We live in a culture where we are taught to fight back. The problem is this. The problem is we don't just fight back to get even. We fight back to one-up the person, don't we? We play a little game of poker. We say, okay, I'll see you, your slap in the face, and I'll put a one-up you and poke you in the eye. Right? So we one-up. We, we don't just get even. We go even further than that. We, we, go, we go beyond that. We, we accelerate it and escalate it, don't we? I don't want you to notice what Jesus says here. Verse 38. You have heard that it is said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The question is, is that really in the Bible? And the answer is yes. It's found actually back in the Old Testament law in the book of Exodus. It's also found repeated in the book of Deuteronomy and in a different form. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 23, listen to this. This is the law. It says, but if there is a harm to you, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, Hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. We find written in the law this idea of an eye for an eye. The idea that when someone does something, there's an equal response. In fact, if you like history, this wasn't just found in the Bible. This is actually predating the Bible. Uh, It goes back to the 18th century B.C., before the law ever came. It was called the the Law of Hammurabi, the Hammurabi Law, Law Code. You ever heard of that? In Hammurabi's law code, there was this law called Lex Telonis, and it was called the law of retaliation. The law of retaliation. How do we retaliate? So this was normal. By the way, that law, the law is written in our hearts, the Bible says. We have laws that are created. I've, I've been in the jungle of Papua New Guinea. They have laws there. They've never heard of the Bible before, but there are laws they have because it's written in our hearts. There's this justice written in our hearts. The thing about this law is this law was actually meant to protect the offender, the one who offended it wasn't meant to be a statement for the offendee, the one who was offended. It was meant to protect the one who was the one that made the offense so that they're not then punished beyond uh, extreme measures. That was the purpose of the law, was to protect so that civil authorities wouldn't cross the boundary in bringing judgment to someone. So in other words, the point of the law in the Old Testament was to say, listen, if someone does something wrong, make sure you don't go too extreme on the punishment. Make sure the punishment fits what happens. Make sure the crime they pay for actually fits the crime. That was the point of the law. The problem is the Pharisees, the scribes, they came in and they rewrote this law. We we know this because it's written in what's called the Mishnah. It's the oral tradition of the rabbis. And they taught some of these things. And one of the things they taught was, was not just a restriction on revenge. 
They turn a restriction on revenge and turn it into a mandate on retaliation. Meaning if someone does something to you, get back at them. Why? Because we don't want you to go to the Roman authorities. Remember Rome was in control during the first century and so the, the scribes and the Pharisees said, just take care of yourself. Just deal with it. Just get back at them equally. And that was the point. By the way, we see this today, don't we? I, I remember a few years ago fly, taking a flight and I was headed to a conference, and I, I was at the counter getting ready to get my ticket, and uh, there was some, a lady right in front of me, and she was talking to a gentleman behind the counter who worked for the airline, and this lady right in front of me, I could tell just began to, to escalate, and she began to get hostile, and she was yelling at the ticket agent. She was yelling, and she was like, you know what, I got here in time, you need to give me my ticket, you need to give me, and this, this gentleman behind the counter was so calm. I mean, he took the bag, and he wrapped it up, and he put the tag on it. He said, ma'am, I'm sorry, you were late. You know, I know you're rushed, but you were late to get here, but we'll give you the ticket. We'll make sure you're on the plane. I'll actually make sure the plane is held if you don't get there in time. So he was trying to de-escalate the situation. And this lady was just going off on him. I mean, she was saying all sorts of things. And so finally, she left. And so I got over the counter, and I just said, hey, sir, I just wanted to let you know, I was real impressed with the way you handled that. Like, you know, I, I think lesser people would have lost their cool there, but you remained calm. He goes, oh, don't worry. Her bags were su supposed to go to Dallas. I sent them to Brazil. <laughs> Absolutely true story. Absolutely true story. I don't remember if it was Brazil, but it was some other country. Dead serious. So, so this law was meant to protect against that. Like if a crime was committed, if something was done, civil authorities and people could not pass over what the crime was. And so the idea was the punishment has to fit the crime. The scribes come and say, no, 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 just repay, pay back. Notice what Jesus says. You've heard it saying an eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth, but I say to you, there's our words, key words throughout this entire sermon, ego de lego, but I say. Jesus, building another culture, now gives us a countercultural view. But I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. What Jesus does is gives four illustrations as to what he's trying to say to them. Not to give an eye for an eye. Not to respond with personal vengeance and retaliation. He gives four illustrations. The first one is, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, don't slap them back, turn the other one. Now, very intentional here, it says the right cheek, because in the first century, it was considered the greatest insult to be backslapped by the right hand. The left hand was looked at as weakness in the first century. Obviously, not anymore, it's, it's looked at as brilliance. But in the first century, the right hand was the hand of power. And so if you backslap somebody, it was considered the greatest form of disrespect. And so the natural response would be, okay, you backslap me. I just lost honor. I was just disrespected. And so now I'm going to come back with at least a backhand. That was the image. Was you better save your honor, protect your respect. And so you would respond. You would react. Jesus here says, listen, if they backslap you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek. Actually, give them the other cheek to slap. He goes on, not only we see there a fight for personal respect, now he gives another illustration, not only a fight for personal respect, but now he says a fight for personal property. He says if someone sues you and they take your tunic, the tunic was the undergarments of the robe, it was literally your t-shirt that was a robe form, it was the, the underwear. And he says if someone sues you and says I'm taking your tunic, give him your cloak as well. Don't fight against it, give him your cloak. We see then a fight for personal property. Not only a fight for personal property, but now the fight for personal freedom. Right? In our, our country, time and energy is everything, right? It's something I control. No one can tell me how to spend my time or give my energy. Well, in the first century, there was a fight for the same thing, except they had a law. And the law was a Roman law that said if a Roman soldier stopped you and asked for help, you were required to help a Roman soldier carry his armor or carry whatever it is he asked you to carry for up to one mile. So throughout the Roman Empire, there were these mile markers. You can go there today and still see them, these historical mile markers. And the law said that if a Roman soldier stopped you because they had jurisdiction everywhere, if they stopped you and asked you to carry something for them, you were required to go one mile. By the way, this is true in the Bible. Remember Simon of Cyrene? Jesus couldn't carry his cross to Golgotha, couldn't carry his cross to the place of the skull. And what happened? The Roman soldiers pulled out a guy named Simon of Cyrene and said, you carry the cross of Jesus. He was required to by the law. By the law, he was required to carry it at least one mile. Beyond that, he could not carry it. He doesn't have to carry it. But one mile, he at least he had to carry it. 
So we get this image. This was a law. And so you would be walking down the street, a Roman soldier's coming off work. He's carrying his armor, and he says, you know what? I don't want to carry the armor anymore. Hey, you, buddy, come up here. You're going to carry my armor. And you have to carry it by law one mile. Jesus responds and says, don't carry it just one. Go two miles. Go, go the extra mile here. Even though you resent this person who is asking you, right? They're the enemy. The Romans were the enemy. Go forward. And then we see the fight for personal possessions. Notice verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The fight for personal possessions. There's a fight in us when somebody asks for something to say, is this a worthy cause? Now, the question with all of these is, was Jesus being literal or not? Was he literally calling us to do this? And the answer is yes and no. It's always a good answer, isn't it? Yes and no. Jesus here is certainly being and using hyperbole. What do I mean? Uh, like if somebody came and said, I'm going to take your underwear, and then he says, give him your cloak as well, I don't think Jesus is saying you need to walk around the city naked. I don't think he's saying give blindly to people when they have need, right? I think there's boundaries you've got to set, or you help people and actually not help them, you're hurting them. And so he's not getting it. He's using hyperbole. But he's not being hyper-literal either, meaning he's not saying, well, that guy slapped me with his right hand on my right cheek. Now I can get him back. Or he, slapped me on, he was supposed to slap me on the right hand, with the right hand on the right cheek, but he missed and got my jawbone. It's on. He missed. He didn't hit me where Jesus said. So some people take this hyper-literally. What Jesus is getting at, and this is the point I believe he's making. It's not to be hyper-literal. It's not to be hyper, hyperbolic. What he's trying to get at, and by the way, this is not just a call to be nice to people. Jesus is saying what we should look at as kingdom people is that we respond, we react with mercy and grace. That's number two. We react when someone comes against us with mercy and grace. By the way, go back up to verse 39. Notice what he says. By the way, this is the, this is the verb that controls this whole text. It says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. Our instinct is when someone is evil against us, we, we push them aside. The word here is antithesis me. And it means to push aside or to push back. It means to kind of let them go, get rid of them. He says, don't resist the one who is evil. Don't push them away. Instead, respond with mercy and grace. By the way, isn't it, isn't it the picture of the gospel? The good news of Jesus Christ? You and I who are enemies with God, God could have wiped us out in the moment of sin, and yet God reached out in mercy. He did not give us what we do deserve. That's mercy. We did not get what we do deserve. Instead, he comes to earth and died on a cross to give us what we didn't deserve, right? So we, we deserved hell. He doesn't give it to us. And then on top of that, he brings us heaven. He says, I'll give you eternal life in my name. He comes and gives us grace. He gives mercy. So here's the picture. Someone slaps us in the face. We, we give mercy. I'm not going to give you what you deserve. You expect me to react. I'm not going to do that. And instead, I'm going to give you mercy or grace. I'm going to give you above and beyond. I'm going to go above and beyond for you. I'm going to show you the gospel in my reaction. That's what Jesus is getting at here. Is this kingdom living? So, so when the driver cuts me off in line at, at, at a store or driving on a road, when I'm disrespected at work, when someone says something on Facebook or on the gram that I don't like, when a spouse says something that goes against the grain, when I'm on, on hold with Spectrum Cable, <laughs> my response should consider the gospel in every moment. That's what Jesus is getting at, is we respond differently as kingdom people. But Jesus takes this one step further. Take a look at what he says. Verse 30, 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus here combines the neighbor with an enemy. Now, in the first century Jews, they would view anyone who was not a Jew as an enemy. If you were not a Jew or you were not a proselyte of Judaism, meaning you were a Gentile who became a Jew, and you follow the religion of the Jewish people, you would be considered an enemy. So the Romans... The Gentiles, the pagans, by the way, the word Gentile literally means the rest of the world. It was everybody who wasn't a Jew. They were considered the enemies. Jesus here draws a line and he says, there is no distinction. 
between a neighbor and an enemy. He brings them, he destroys the distinction between neighbor and enemy, and he draws them in, and he gives us a picture of his law of love. Remember the law of love? To love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus defines it here before he ever says it later. He says, hey, you, you know your enemies, the ones who curse you and hate you and exploit you? He says, love them. Bless them. Do good to them. Don't react the way they expect you to react. Respond with an attitude of the gospel. Respond with the actions of the gospel. Why? Why should we do this? I want to show you how he answers. And this, by the way, is number three. Reflect the Father's character of love regardless of the offense. Take a look at what he says. Verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Why does God allow the evil to remain? Because if he got rid of all the evil, he would have to get rid of all of us. He wouldn't have given us a chance. See, the whole point of the sun coming up on both the, the, the good and the evil is because God has a plan in saving many. And so what happens, when we don't respond in retaliation, when we respond in love, we're actually giving a picture of the Father's character of love. A God who could have wiped us out. Remember the verse, I love Romans, it says that, that in, in our sins, in the midst of our sins, Christ died for us. It was in the midst of our sins, it was in our most sinful state that Christ came and died. That's the picture of the Father's character. And so when we don't respond the way that the world expects us to, we are giving proof that we belong to the Father. Notice the word there. We, if you, notice it says that we may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. This is not that we're made sons. It's that we prove we're sons. We prove our sonship by the way we react to our enemies, by loving them. We show that our DNA is different. Number four, we, we love our enemies because we reach out by building bridges, not by causing and having stumbling blocks. We reach out by building bridges, not stumbling blocks for the gospel. Notice what he says, verse 40, 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't the tax collectors do the thing. By the way, tax collectors were legal thieves. They, they, were, they were employed by the Romans, they were Jews, employed by the Romans to go to the Jewish people, their own people, and, and get taxes. And the only way they made money was to increase the taxes so they would take the profit. And so if the tax was 10%, they would go house to house and say, you owe me 15%. And the 5% would be theirs. That's how they worked. And so they were, they were legal thieves. So Jesus says, don't the tax collectors love the people that love them? Don't the Gentiles, the rest of the world, love the people that love them? But he says, you, no, 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 you love the people that you're not even supposed to love. Why? Because it builds a bridge to show who God is. It builds a bridge to, to give a picture of the gospel. It builds a bridge to say God can change your lives. In other words, I don't look at the world as unbelieving and an enemy. This is true in our Christian world today. I think it's happening way too much where, where we, look at, we look at Christians against the world and say it's us versus them. I, I share this with my boys all the time. I say, boys, we cannot expect unbelieving people to act believing. Unbelieving people are unbelieving. They're gonna, they're, in fact, I would dare say we're in a more healthy spot as a culture. Let me tell you why. Because there's not fake Christianity anymore. Right, you're out or you're in. It used to be, well, I'm a Christian, but you, nobody lived like a Christian, right? You can do whatever you want. And now the culture's divided where you know who's not a Christian and you know who is a Christian. And as that divide happens, it allows the church to become all the more authentic. So when we come to the world, when we live in the world that we live in, the jobs that we have and the neighborhoods we live in, all of a sudden we begin to shine brighter because it's not just cultural, it's real. It's real. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Is now I build the bridge and I look at unbelievers not as the enemy, but as the mission. I look at unbelievers not as the enemy, but the mission. That means when someone hurts me, I don't take it personally because they're acting out on their worldview. They're acting out on the selfishness of the way they view the world. My job is to paint the picture of Christ. Now, this passage ends in an odd way, verse 48. You, you therefore, so based upon what he said, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, tooth for a tooth, don't do that. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word perfect there, and I think the point he's trying to make is to remember that we're on a journey to spiritual maturity. The word perfect here is the word teleos. 
Teleos is not the idea of just holy, where we're perfect in this world. The, the word teleos literally means to, to, to bring to completion what is lacking, or to bring to an end, to finish the work. The image that Jesus is giving is, is remember that God has a work that he's doing, and God will keep his word to finish his work. And so as we respond to the people around us, not with retaliation, but with gospel grace, with gospel mercy, what happens? All of a sudden, we grow in our faith. We become more spiritually mature. We become less lacking and more gaining. I know this is true in my life. Every time I've responded in retaliation, whether it's words or not, I've always had to go back and say, I'm sorry. I've always had to eat a humble pie. When I respond to someone who hurts me, not with retaliation, but with grace and mercy, when I respond building the bridge to the gospel, you know what happens? My faith increases. All of a sudden, I, I feel more connected to the Father. Why? Because I'm reflecting Him. I understand Him more. Instead of responding, I'm trying to respond the way He would want. And all of a sudden, I feel this growth in me. I feel this closeness to the Father. That's what He's getting at. Is when we follow God's plan, what happens? Our faith grows. We, we, we get more mature. We become more perfected on this side of eternity. So, so what do we do with this? Obviously, this is a bold statement. What do we do with this? I want to give you a few thoughts as we end. How, how do we respond? First of all, I think Jesus is reminding us not to live in our hurts. He is. He, he makes it clear here that we will be hurt. We will be offended. Somebody will come at us and bring us pain. It's going to happen. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said in John chapter 11. We will have trouble. Do not live in our hurts. Secondly, don't escalate our, the pain. Don't escalate the situation. Instead, I want you to see what Jesus gives. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and notice the anecdote, pray for those who persecute you. Instead of, instead of escalating the situation, I am called to go to the Lord in prayer. This criticism against me, this reaction against me, this person that slapped my cheek, I take it to the Lord in prayer. See, what I love about being a Christian is God doesn't just say, hey, suck it up, don't worry about it. He says, come to me. Come to me as your father. Come to me and trust me. Remember, as Romans says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Come to me, trust what I'm doing, trust what I'm doing, and that your reaction could actually bring the gospel to this person who has hurt you. Fourthly, or thirdly, I, I think we, we pray for those who hurt us. Pray for them by name. Mention their name to the Father. Say, God, this person, I pray for them. You know what happens when we pray in that way? It takes us from wanting to retaliate to realizing the issue is when someone hurts us, the issue is not us, it's in their hearts. It's usually in their own hearts. And so we're bringing it to God and saying, God, uh, will you help in us to be, uh, will you help me, will you help us to be able to respond correctly? And ultimately the goal is to turn an enemy into a friend. The response is prayer that turns an enemy into a friend. That's exactly what God did. By the way, I, I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote. He, he wrote, this is the supreme demand. Through prayer, we go to our enemy, we stand side by side with him, and we plead for him to God. I love that. We go right to the one who's offended, so we stand by his side and say, God, will you help this person know you? Will you help this person get what you've done for them? Will you help them see mercy and grace in my life? We stand and we plead their case. I love what John Stott wrote. He wrote, if the cruel torture of the crucifixion, remember Jesus? On the cross, he didn't respond by zapping them all out. He responded with, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies. What pain, what pride, what prejudice, what sloth could justify silencing ours. He says if Jesus could be silent in that moment and respond in mercy and grace, how much more should we be able to do that? We don't face the cross. This image is we respond with prayer. We, we trust God. We don't retaliate. We respond with grace and mercy so that person sees the gospel in us and we become the light of the world. We become the salt of the earth. Would you stand with me as we close in prayer? As we stand to pray, maybe you're here and you're walking through some difficult things. Maybe you feel there's an enemy that keeps coming at you. There's somebody that's just frustrating you and they, they, they just, 
man, they get you riled up and you feel like responding. Maybe for you it's been retaliation. And you've been trying to get back at someone. Could this morning be a, the day we put it to rest? You say, God, what was done is unfair. But I'm going to trust that you're going to deal with that. Instead, I want to be a light of the gospel. I want to be a light of the good news. I want to reflect your character, God. When I was an enemy, you didn't cast me aside. No, you drew me in. You didn't stand against me. You made me a friend. Maybe you're here and you don't know Christ. And you, you were invited by somebody. Today could be the day of your salvation where God takes you from an enemy and his great love brings you into a friendship that he died for you and rose again for you. We have some people at Next Steps as you lead to the right. They love to pray with you. They love to talk with you. Maybe you're here and you're walking through some difficult situations. And you just want to pray with somebody. We would love to have that honor to pray for you. Some of you, I want you to pray. I'd ask you to pray about our, our, our more campaign. Would you be willing to make sure we get that $50,000 matching gift and give toward that. Whatever little can help, we would love to have you do that. That is the reason we're doing campus, is to go out in the world, to not make enemies, but to reach a mission, a mission of those who do not know Christ, who are enemies with God, who can know the good truth that God saves. Would you bow with me? God, I want to thank you for your word. You are so good and faithful. Lord, we read this, and it's not easy. God, this is not an easy text. It's difficult to think about how do we not retaliate when something comes against us. God, it's in our nature. Our very nature is to fight back. We're scrappy in our nature. And yet, what makes us different is when we don't do what everybody expects. When instead of reacting in payback, retaliation, retribution, we respond with mercy and grace. God, it, 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 it leads us to be the light of the world. It leads us to be the salt of the earth. And so, God, may we be a people that even love our enemies. Lord, we know that you weren't just calling people to pacifism. This isn't a, a declaration against war. Lord, it was a calling to live a countercultural life in the way we respond personally in relationships with people. And so, God, may we live differently. May we live not as people as our enemies, but people as our mission. And may we see them differently so that you then call us to, to reflect you, our Father, May your DNA be seen in us as we live our life around the people and in relationship with the people around us. All for your name, all for your glory, Jesus. The one who made a way for us, we who were enemies, to become friends of God. We who were slaves to be set free. In your name, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King. Amen, amen. Thanks for being here this morning. We love you guys. God bless you. Fill out those cards, put them in the, in the mailboxes. Let us know online what you like to do. We love you. God bless you.